Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. The New Books Network is dedicated to raising the level of public discourse by introducing scholars and other serious writers to a wide public via new media. I'm Christina Bosch, one of the hosts on this channel. Today, I'm honored to be in conversation with two leaders in inclusive and higher education, Jan Nisbet and Nancy Weiss. With contributions from Nancy Weiss, Jan Nisbet has authored the first volume to be written about the only facility in the country, and likely the world, that uses painful electric shock on children and adults with disabilities for the purpose of behavior control, now and in the past. The book is called Pain and Shock in America, Politics, Advocacy, and the Controversial Treatment of People with Disabilities, published just this past October 2021 by Brandeis University Press as part of their series on law and society. Jan and Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to give some background on the book, um, which will appear with some citations in the blog post on the New Books Network website when this interview goes up. It's a long and complex story, so this is my sort of synopsis to give folks some background. Um, In 1970, a failed commune leader and Harvard-educated psychologist ran a federally funded program in Rhode Island in a now-defunct state orphanage rife with emotional, physical, and sexual abuse perpetrated by staff and all the way through to high-level administrators. These are the long institutional roots of a place called the Judge Rotenberg Center, a privately run facility in Massachusetts, which despite six student deaths and consistent frequent citations for abuse and neglect has been funded by taxpayers from about a dozen states and our nation's capital as a placement for students with disabilities who increasingly are multiply marginalized youth and adults meaning that they are people of color with backgrounds in the foster care, penal, and mental health systems. In this interview, we'll compare the rising political influence of disabled self-advocates to the ruling professionals of the last few decades, whose use of the medical metaphor shaped public perception and educational discourse on disability. We'll discuss how civil rights for children with disabilities unfolded alongside a lack of inclusive educational options for them and how parental advocacy, the legal system, and the executive branches at the state and federal levels have legitimized draconian practices based in archaic and outlawed research. As stated in the book, the story is long, complicated, and filled with questions about society and its ability to care about, protect, and support the most vulnerable citizens. It is a story that calls into question the degree to which people who do not have disabilities can separate themselves from those who do, allowing painful interventions that they themselves would not likely tolerate. The Judge Rotenberg Center provides a lens through which we can understand the societal issues facing people with disabilities and their families. Nancy and Jan, again, thank you for being here and congratulations on this important book. Thank you. Um, So to get started, your biographies are 
quite extensive. You're both very accomplished professionals in these fields. And you've been working on this issue, I think, in parallel for quite some time. Could you start us off um, by telling us about, you know, when your collaboration began and how it has unfolded over the years to produce this book? Maybe, Jan, you could start us off. Um, So Nancy and I have had a long history together uh, working in the field of of disabilities. I met Nancy first. I was president of the board of directors for TASH. And Nancy was the incoming executive director. And TASH is Um, a disability advocacy organization. Originally, it was the Association for Persons with Severe Handicaps. And then it got essentially renamed to its acronym TASH. And so that was really the first time that I met Nancy. And, you know, she has been really active in the whole disability rights movement for many, many years. And, you know, I have been active through my work uh, at the University of New Hampshire, you know, in in different ways. But I would say, you know, we acted in parallel and sometimes we intersected along the way, and this is the latest intersection. Beautiful. So um, I guess to to expand on that a little bit, um, in the book, Jan, you share that you first learned about BRI as a graduate student in 1981 and decided to write a book about the use of aversive interventions in 1998 for a couple of reasons. What I would like to sort of pull the curtain back on for listeners is first the research process involved um, in doing a historical case study of this nature. And secondly, the internal processes, as much as you can share, that carried you through to the finish line on this book because it has been a 20 year plus process, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so, you know, as you said, I really did not know that a place like this existed till I was at a Boston Autism Society of America conference, you know, as a graduate student. Um, And it was in the, you know, it was in the room where people are like selling products and books and, you know, at conferences and, and there was this center, you know, that was, they were giving out gold coins, as I recall. And I was with the Lapins, Connie and Harvey Lapin, whose son, Sean, had been at the center. And they were just appalled because the Autism Society of America, in, they believed, had banned him. And he, they didn't think he should be there. Matthew Israel should be there. So that kind of got my attention. But I was a graduate student and I was working hard on getting through my program. And then when I ended up at... Uh, you know, I heard about the center when I was at Syracuse University, but wasn't deeply involved. Then when I went to the University of New Hampshire, I was closer, obviously, to Massachusetts and began working with Herb Lovett. And Herb would tell me stories that, I mean, frankly, I was appalled. And I myself could not understand how, given our federal regulations and given, you know, recent uh, decisions around deinstitutionalization and right to treatment and protection from harm, how a place like this could exist. And so, you know, we would have conversations about it. He would tell me stories. He was very funny and, you know, sarcastic. And then when 
he tragically died in a car accident, you know, I still had all these questions, but, and it compelled me to say, okay, if I don't understand it, and I'm pretty, you know, deep in the field, you know, then most people don't understand it. And, and you know, there'd been two unsuccessful lawsuits that the center had won against the state of Massachusetts. So I decided, okay, you know, I'd written a lot of articles and, you know, not many people read those. And I thought, well, you know, I'll try the book thing. And so I went ahead and began that process. And I was fortunate to have a very good research assistant who put out a call to everyone. I gave her lists of names, send me what you have, send me letters, send me documents. Um, And then I began the process of, you know, doing what you do, which is you try to find all the newspaper articles through Nexus at that time, Nexus, Lexus searches, you know, you, you try to interview people, which was very difficult. Those closest to the center often would not talk to me because they felt threatened or they were under court order. Um, So, you know, there weren't a lot of personal interviews that I was able to do. And so it ended up being a highly documented, uh, you know, highly documented book. And as I say in the book, I would receive boxes uh, with no addresses, return addresses filled with records. I could usually figure out where they came from, um, sometimes not so much. Um, And so I essentially tried to put together all these materials via a timeline. So starting from the 70s, and I would just cluster them, read them, try to figure out what was going on during that period of time. Who were the players? How, you know, what were they trying to do? Um, and then supplement those records and with newspaper articles, lawsuit documents. And then that's how I, you know, got through most of the book. And when I was almost done, which was uh, 2009, I changed positions and became senior vice provost for research. I put the book underneath my desk because I wanted to remind myself that it was an unfinished document. And then one day I get a call from Nancy and she's like, when are you going to finish the book? (laughs) And I said, okay. And I was, I was after 10 years leaving that position. So she gave me the kick in the butt that I needed. And then we collaborated on finishing the book. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that for for writers everywhere and researchers everywhere. I'm sure that's appreciated. And I I also appreciate you mentioning, you know, I as a graduate student, someone who has been working in the field in Massachusetts for 10 years, just found out about this place within the last two years. And that's kind of wild. So it's kind of um, interesting to just hear that that's an experience that keeps repeating over the decades. Um So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the book as a book. Nancy, could you take us, um, introduce us into the content a little bit in in the sense that I know you witnessed um, BRI's methods directly um, at one point, right? And that's a really powerful story that I've heard you share. Um, Would you mind uh, sharing that with us here now and then perhaps expanding a bit if you can on how things at the Judge Rotenberg Center, formerly known as the Behavioral Research Institute, how things may have changed since that 
time um, and how they may have not. <laughs> sure. Well, I'll just uh, start off by saying that it, the this experience of not knowing that this exists is, is just um, true across the field. Now my job entails doing training with people that work in agencies that serve adults with disabilities. And so I work with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people a year. And I always put in something about the Judge Rotenberg Center because I feel like it's important for people to know this story. And almost without exception, people, even people who've worked in the field for years and years, have never heard of this, could not believe this. And if you ask the next 10 people you walk by in the street, if you tell them this story in a nutshell, they're going to all say the same thing, which is, whoa, how could this be legal? What? Wait, this is happening now? It's still happening? Yes, it's legal and it's still happening. So it's, it's a horrifying part of our history that continues today. In um, 1992, I was hired by the state of Delaware to help them. I I, I live and work in in uh, I I live in Baltimore, so I wasn't in Delaware at the time. Um, they asked me to help them put together a team of people that would go out and visit and get to know all of the people who. Uh, that state, the state of Delaware, had sent out of state. All states end up sending people that they can't figure out what to do with out of state to these out of state residential facilities. Usually school systems do this during people's school age years. And then, of course, as your listeners probably know well, when somebody turns 22, they're no longer the financial responsibility of the schools. They're the financial responsibility of the State Department of Developmental Disabilities, which is called different things in different states. But at that point, many times the state uh, adult system is interested in bringing people back, if not because it's the right thing to do, because it's just ungodly expensive to keep people at these residential facilities, especially at this one. So I, in visiting everybody from Delaware who were spread out at a number of different facilities, got the chance to visit the Judge Rotenberg Center, as you said, Christina, previously called the Behavior Research Institute. I think one reason they changed their name is that advocates used to say, if you're the Behavior Research Institute, where's the research? And there was no research. There's no published research on the efficacy of their methods. So um, we can talk later, but at some point they changed their name to the Judge Rotenberg Center, uh, honoring the judge who had approved all of their aversive methods for so many years and really um, probably is one of the reasons that the place still exists. So I visited the Judge Rotenberg Center in late 1992 and, um, you know, spent two days there. We were there observing a couple of guys from Delaware who were there. They were now adults, uh, young men. And one of those young men was working, sorting some nuts and bolts. And he glanced up at us. Of course, we were visitors and, you know, we're watching him. And so it's reasonable that he would 
take a look at us. And the staff person came up behind him, grabbed him from behind the neck, pulled down this hydraulic water hose that runs all over the, the ceiling of the place and spray, 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 sprays him in the face until he's sopping wet, his shirt, his eyes. He just turns back to his work. He doesn't even wipe his eyes. He just goes back to work. It was shocking to me, you know, and then just a few minutes later in that same room, they grab a little girl. She's probably seven or eight years old out of her seat. They say, come, they motion to me, come with me. I'll show you what happens to kids like this. They take this little girl. They have her kneel down on a wooden bench, maybe three or four inches from the floor, strap her feet down behind her, strap her hands to a little wooden bench in front of her and put a, like a welder's helmet over her head. It comes down around her chest and over her shoulders. There's a window in front of her eyes, but it's painted black. So she's in this dark black helmet that covers her from up through her chest. And then in her ears is blasting white noise, loud white noise blasting. And in front of her face is a water spray that rhythmically sprays. And she has to stay there until she stops struggling for 15 minutes, which in her case was over an hour until she really just exhausted her little self. Okay, I was in the room when this happened, and I said, well, what did she do? I mean, I didn't even see her do. Like, what, you know, she made an unnecessary noise. Well, whatever this unnecessary noise was, it wasn't so, I didn't even, I didn't even notice it. It, You know, some moaning sound under her breath that was unnecessary, in their view. That evening, we went back to the group homes where people live. So they go to this facility during the day. At that time, they went from 7 in the morning till 7 at night, 364 days a year, not Christmas Day. Um, And then we got out, we and my colleague got out of the van to go into this group home before the people that lived there got into the home. And I'm looking around and I'm saying, well, eight people live here. First of all, there's not even a a table big enough for more than two people. There's a little cocktail table in the dining room. There's no TV. There's no ping pong table. There's no stereo. It's like there's the the guys that lived in this house got out of the van. They marched. They hung up their coats. They marched right into the um, kind of a side porch area and that was set up with work carols, just like the work carols they had left at school. And now they were sorting plastic spoons and forks rather than nuts and bolts because they were home. They were sorting home-like materials. And I said to the staff, I mean, it it occurred to me that I'd been at the school or the facility all day long. I hadn't seen them eat. I hadn't seen a cafeteria. Where, what, wait, where do they eat? And she said, they earn portions of their breakfast from the time they wake up until one o'clock in the afternoon. They earn portions of their lunch between one and four. And these portions are in little tiny inch big paper cups. So a tablespoon of food, they can earn at a time. And then if they haven't earned any food until four in the afternoon, they get cold ground chicken with liver powder on it so that nobody could accuse them of starving people to death. They get something nutritious that's as unpalatable as they can make it. I went back to the facility the next day 
I observed more of that kind of thing. I they were using uh, jalapeno pepper in people's mouths, and they were using these spatula spanks they invented. I mean, they designed themselves these giant rubber spatulas to spank people with. They pulled down the pants of a young woman in front of everybody and spanked her on her buttocks. They um, also used these rolling pinches. Staff told me they had to grow their fingernails so that when they held up their hand. Uh, palm forward, their fingernails extended over the back of their pants so that they had fingernails that they could do rolling pinches that removed a little chunk of flesh. I left there saying, oh, I got to do something about this place. I was with my colleague. He didn't seem particularly disturbed, but I was extremely disturbed. Um, all I could think of, where's Amnesty International? Like, this is torture. They do torture. Where are they? Went back, wrote this whole kind of academic paper about the use of aversives and what I saw there, but also the use of aversives in other places across the country, aversives being painful procedures to punish behaviors that people don't want them to have. Uh, and I began sending that paper out far and wide as people requested it um, a lot through TASH, uh, which I wasn't uh, a staff person for TASH at the time, but I was always a, a TASH member. And uh, um, I called Amnesty International. They Amnesty USA was having their uh, annual conference in Boston that year. The facility then was in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh I said, I want to speak at your conference. I just went to a place and I just, and I told them what I saw, like I just said here. And the guy said, he was the head of um, policy and programming. He said, uh, whoa, whoa, what is this place? I said, it's, uh, he said, is it a, a juvenile prison? I said, no, it's a facility for kids with autism, which is what it was at the time. And he said, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, we don't get involved in things like that. Yeah, I know, but why? He's like, well, we don't know what people like that need. Yeah, but I think, he said, we're not doctors, but I don't think you need to have any particular letters after your name to know that we don't do that to people, right? He's like, yeah, but you know what? I mean, if the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association approves this kind of thing, we don't, we're not going to go and tell them differently. We're not going to go up against them. So you'll go up against the government of Bolivia, but you won't go up against the American Psychological Association? I don't get that. Um, I'll just footnote here that for the last 30 years, I've been trying to get Amnesty International interested in this issue to no avail. A journalist in the Midwest, Lucy Gwynn, who wrote a very um, irreverent kind of um, disability magazine called The Mouth, uh, got a copy of my paper. She called me. She said, Nancy, I've got tears in my eyes. I'm reading this thing. You and I are going to close this place down. Okay. How are we going to do that? She said, we're going to interview people. So she and I put an ad in the Providence Journal saying, journalist wishes to speak with current and former employees. She and I interviewed um, maybe 150 people. We took notes. We recorded those interviews when we could. We pulled out of those interviews three or four pages of direct quotes that were bone chilling, and we sent them to 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes 
immediately, you know, this was in the day when you sent something to 60 Minutes by putting paper in an envelope and a stamp on it. And so three days later, they call, yes, they're interested. They eventually gave this, this story to Connie Chung, who had a news magazine show called Eye to Eye with Connie Chung. She did a great job covering the story. She assigned a, a producer named Judy Ryback, who uh, spent a year putting the story together. They wanted to get me to go up and get a job there. They wanted to find somebody who could wear a hidden camera, who could get a job there without falsifying the resume, which they figured I might be able to, and who could wear a hidden camera. Well, I, I couldn't and wouldn't do it, but we had interviewed a guy who still worked there who I thought might be willing to wear a hidden camera, which he was. And so the show was very powerful. And I, at that time, thought when this hits the light of day, there's going to be public outcry. We don't do this to people in our country, anybody. And this is going to be the end of that place. Well, I was young and naive. This is 30 years ago. Uh, I don't think that now because it's been covered over and over again. It, the story really isn't a secret. But, you know, I think it boils down to our as a society, our willingness to do to people with disabilities what we would never tolerate. It, I mean, there's federal legislation that protects elephants from using electric shock in the circus training. We, you know, if we heard that this was being done to people with disabilities in, uh, you know, in, in a, a school or it to older people in a nursing home or to animals at the animal shelter, we'd be up in arms. Before I left the, the visit in 1993, uh, in 1992 at the Judge Rotenberg Center, a young man grabbed me by the arm in the, in the hallway and said, ma'am, can you help me? You got to get me out of here. You don't know what they do to me. Can you get me a lawyer? Can you help me? And it, it makes me sad to this day that I don't know his name, but his voice stays with me and I've tried to honor that request ever since. Thank you, Nancy, for all of that. I mean, it's super powerful and speaks for itself, but I I also just want to highlight for listeners that what you're talking about um, really exemplifies the, the evolution of how we conceive of disability in society in some ways, right? Going back to, just to give people a little background, like medieval times, this idea of the ship of fools, religious and moral ideas about disability being a punishment of some sort, right? Kind of then transitioning over a long period of time into the medical model of disability as a sickness, illness, something that needs to be cured, if not shut away in a hospital type institution setting. Then thanks to advocacy, getting the social model. But I think currently where we are, and I've talked about this previously on on New Books Network, models like neurodiversity, right? Uh, Interactionist kind of models now. So things have changed. And at the same time, it seems that uh, for the public, at large, maybe um, perceptions have yet to sort of evolve to really see folks with disability um, as equal to folks who do not have disabilities. So in that spirit, Jan, could you summarize a bit of the second chapter of the book, which is called How We Got to This Place, and just unpack for folks, Nancy mentioned diversives, for example, uh, terms like behavior analysis, 
right? Behavior modification, aversive therapy. These are all connected to something called behaviorism. Could you just sort of give an orientation to this topic as a, an important point of how we got here? Sure. Um, so, you know, it, it I mean, pe- people um, know about Pavlov's dog, right? The drooling and the food and, and then B.F. Skinner and his pigeons. And so there was you know, experimentation that was demonstrated that you could use reinforcement and punishment to change people's, to change behavior, whether it was animal behavior or human behavior. And that work, you know, became translated to humans and in particular to people with disabilities and, and people living in institutions. And so on one hand, you know, this was a very powerful tool. And there was a, there was a man whose name was Mark Gold, who, uh, Dr. Mark Gold, who uh, wrote some very important papers around behavior modification. And he taught institutionalized adults how to assemble bicycle brakes. Now, this was huge. I mean, these were people who had been institutionalized. People thought, they couldn't do anything. They were profoundly retarded. That was the terminology that was being used. And lo and behold, he using this behavior techno applied behavioral analysis, he taught people to do that. So people were very they saw this as a really powerful tool. It's a very powerful tool. It can be used in a positive way. It can be used in a negative way. And so what happened was <clears throat> I have a PhD from the University of Wisconsin in behavioral disabilities. And the language was adopted kind of universally that this was not something inherently wrong with people. These were people who were not being systematically taught. And so along the way, what happened was people began to use these systematic instruction behavioral technologies and they use them in institution, they use them in community settings, but there became a split. So the, you know, there was an organization um, at that time, AAMR, which was the American Association of Mental Retardation, was continuing to support institutionalization, you know, but was publishing articles on how to use behavior modification in institutions and other settings. And then TASH emerged. And I think you know, in the book, and if you'll give me the opportunity, um, I I have a piece that one of the founders of Tash wrote, um, and I think it 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 really clarifies the split that happened and sort of how we got to this place. We have Tash because in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, it was abundantly clear to a few parents and professionals that no other organization was addressing the ideological research, financial and programmatic rights and needs of people with severe disabilities, the most vulnerable, segregated, abused, neglected, and denied people in our society. The people were quarantined in horrible institution wards who were excluded and rejected from public schools by too many of the continuum tolerators who were confined to segregated activity centers and workshops and who were quarantined in nursing homes and other unnatural living environments that were certified as acceptable by the ruling professionals. And so 
you know, applied behavioral analysis started out as a neutral term and then eventually, you know, became terminology that um, was uh, used by some people who were advocating for institutions and some people who were trying to teach people how to be able to live in the community. And then over time, applied behavior analysis, you know, had some negative connotation assigned to it because it was considered controlling, right? People were trying to control your behavior. And um, and uh, how do you how do you use these tools in a way where people participate and make choices? And so that's really I think where the where the schism is right now. Um, and then the emergence of the self advocate advocacy movement, to me, has been paramount in this discussion, where it's the people who have ha- been subjected to these techniques, right? If you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get a little bit of food. You know, that's different than help, you know, breaking down a task and helping people learn how to do a task in a way that has what you call natural, you know, consequences, right? Not not things that people contrive to control you. But so when the self-advocacy movement got involved um, and uh, I think the voice of people with disabilities expressing their distaste, their horror, expressing their experiences publicly, people began to see a different issue than what had been medicalized as these people need this in order to live. Um, And I, I believe the conversation has changed. I think the field is in a better place. I think the FDA decision would not have happened if it hadn't been for the voice of people with disabilities. And when I say the FDA decision for the listeners of this podcast, the Food and Drug Administration uh, issued a ban on the use of electric shock on people with disabilities that unfortunately was, you know, uh, sort of held, um, delayed because of COVID and then overturned recently by the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, D.C. Circuit. And we're, we're now waiting for a decision on whether or not that's going to stand or not. So I just thank you so much for that. And I just want to also connect this to, you know, Nancy mentioned this piece about the helmet. And uh, I want to clarify for folks that throughout the book, there are some really kind of compelling stories about families, parents who are struggling with really extreme self-injurious behaviors. And now we have something called positive behavior supports, right? Which perhaps, uh, Nancy, you could briefly describe for folks so that they understand that they're, how the field has advanced, as Jan said. And just to kind of also illustrate, though, um, early in the book, you mentioned that in 1989, a court approved the use of an electric shock helmet for a young man for exhibiting the following behaviors, head shaking, applying pressure to his collarbone, getting out of his seat, getting out of bed, walking or running away from the group, blinking his eyes rapidly, holding his head to his shoulder, leg shaking and clicking his teeth. So I just want to, you know, sort of illustrate for folks that, as you said, Jan, like there's um, perhaps, you know, uh, systematic instruction for um 
behaviors that are uh, either self-injurious or um, um, presenting some sort of barrier for the actual person, right, in terms of their ability to communicate is one thing. But the use of a lot of these technologies that come from applied behavioral analysis to coerce, control, and inflict pain is another. So, so Nancy, could you just briefly define for people what are positive behavior intervention supports, which is what the the field now, um, you know, has to offer? Sure. So the Judge Rotenberg Center would have one believe that this is the only place in the country that serves people with severely challenging behaviors. There are people that have behaviors that are very difficult and even dangerous. There are people who have self-injurious and aggressive behaviors. We now understand that, first of all, that there are people in every state all over the country and in every country internationally that present these kinds of challenges. And though there are people like that in every state across the country who are served with positive behavior supports that are not only as effective, but more effective in that they have more staying power. So what we now know about behavior is that it's a person's ability to try, uh, a a person's um, um, desire uh, to try to get something that they're not getting or to avoid something that they are getting. So it's motivated by something they've learned. So if I do this, I will get something or get out of doing something. And a lot of times people's behaviors are a, are a, a protest. They're a function of, you know, if, if we can agree that there's no greater human motivation than to be in charge of one's own life and make one's own decisions. I mean, every time people have an argument with their husband, partner, spouse about, you know, who's going to decide something, people want self-agency. They want to be in charge of their own lives. If we didn't, we'd all still live with our mothers. So if we agree that everybody wants to be in charge of their own life and assert themselves, and then we put people in these settings, not just at the Judge Rotenberg Center, but really, you know, in any kind of congregate setting, even community-based congregate settings, where we take people's power over themselves away from themselves, and we decide everything for people, and we tell them what they're going to eat, and when they're going to eat it, and whether they're going to take a bath or a shower, and what boring kind of useless thing they're going to do during the day, then it's no surprise to us that people are mad about that. And they protest in the only way that they know how, which is to what we would call act out. Then somebody acts out, they behave in a way that we find distressing or that is actually dangerous or disruptive. And then we say, this person needs more structure. We like that word structure. We like it better than control, but it means the same thing. So then we provide the person a more structured environment. And then they even have to act out more aggressively or more uh, in a way that that attracts more attention. And then we say, see, we're right. They needed more control. We're going to control them even tighter. So the tighter you control somebody, the more they're going to act out. And what we now know is that if somebody's telling us through their behavior that they want more attention or more control or more opportunities to 
do something or do less of something. If we would just create a life for them that gives them back choice and control and gives them what they're asking, you know, people, I've done a lot of work with uh, behavioral, positive behavioral support to my career and teachers will often say, you know, he's just doing that for attention. Well, that's really too bad that he has to act, has to do something so dramatic to get attention. And we got to make sure that he's got a ton of attention built into his life at school when he's not doing that. And then as soon as he's doing that, let's not give him attention. We're not going to punish him. We're just not going to attend to that. She's spitting. We're going to ignore when she spits. We're going to give her lots of interesting things to do and attention when she's not spitting. And she'll figure out that life is better when she doesn't do those. So, Jim. Well, I, I just want to add that, you know, over time, um, and I think this is in part why there's a different population at the Rottenberg Center. You know, the field is offering, has offered early intervention services that are inclusive. So, you know, let's say a, a child is, you know, not communicating or, you know, exhibiting some early problematic behaviors, as we call them, you know, I think the field now is like, okay, let's get them around other kids. Let's use behavior, you know, support. If the child doesn't have a communication system, you know, the whole field of augmentative and alternative communication has evolved since the 1970s. And so I think that, you know, I, I think early intervention, inclusive preschools, positive behavior supports, uh, augmentative and alternative communication systems for for kids who have difficulty communicating, you put those together and you you automatically decrease a huge number of individuals who are going to have these long-term problematic behaviors that require what I would call very intensive, you know, intervention. And so I think that it's important to contextualize the societal change that has happened. And as a result, the Rottenberg Center is now serving very few people with autism and many more people who might be labeled as having emotional disabilities, mental health issues, uh, problems with the juvenile justice system. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I mean, something like early intervention is directly tied to federal legislation and evolutions in in the law, right? So to briefly bring that in, I want to just sort of recap for folks that in it wasn't until 1975, which is a few years after uh, the Behavior Research Institute or Judge Rotenberg Center was um, formed that we got the landmark law, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which was important because it guaranteed a free and appropriate public education, which we know in our field is called FAPE, guaranteed a free and appropriate public education to every child with a disability. And it served upwards of three and a half million kids in its first year, which was something I just learned in preparing for this, Um, which just, I think, gives a sense compared to also the numbers now of how much... um, I don't know, just how much need that there was and also how at the time that this came about, there weren't things like early intervention. And one of the things I want to talk about now is also the lack of inclusive placement options. Um, so we we got, you know, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act in 1990. This, I, this same law was reauthorized as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. But 
as these landmark laws were unfolding that said that students with disabilities had a civil right to be educated in the least restrictive environment, right, alongside their their peers um, in public educational settings, there was a lack of placements for families who who had students who had, um, well, there was either a lack of placement options or a lack of services, right, available to, to, to youth and families who needed more intensive and extensive supports. And I think one of the stories in the book that most illustrates this, and, you know, I, I think in special education, we don't always do a good job of really showing folks the history of the field because there's always this urgent need in the schools, right? But the story in 1981 of um, Danny Oswad was really, uh, really impactful and chilling to me. I mean, there's stories throughout the book that just, and as Nancy Gate, you know, illustrated, I mean, there's just chilling stories throughout the book about um, how sometimes actually like the lack of placements and services is a matter of life and death. Um, so the story of Danny Oswad is that he's 14, he's found um, dead in his bed, his extremities are strapped to the bed, he's face down right across from the California State University's Northridge campus in, as I said, 1981. He's the child of an immigrant mother who struggled to obtain adequate social support for her family once the father left. She tried numerous things, right, Um, and reported that none of Danny's violent behaviors happened at home. Can, can maybe, Jan, you first react to this story in a way that sort of centers the civil right that Danny had and which repeatedly throughout the, throughout the book, you mentioned that it's like folks don't draw on the civil right enough in their arguments is what my impression was. Um, yeah, just run with that, please. Sure. So, you know, again, Danny's death was at uh, the Behavior Research Institute uh, group home, residential home in California. Um, I think that his story, unfortunately, is uh, emblematic of what was going on at the time, which was there weren't family support systems um, in place at that time. So, uh, and it wasn't that easy to get assistance after school. It wasn't that easy to get your child into an inclusive educational placement. The placements that did exist often were segregated schools. You know, my my uh, advisor and mentor, Lou Brown, used to say, do you really think it makes a lot of sense to put a group of children who have behavior problems and communication problems together in the same room? I mean, they're going to learn from each other. They're going to, it's not going to enhance their communication skills. And so, you know, Danny, in my opinion, was the victim of a time, you know, where probably the fact that, you know, he, his mother was a recent immigrant. She may not have had the ability to navigate the system or to be able to advocate. Um, That sometimes takes time to learn all the systems and all the, the ways that you have to operate. And so he gets placed and he doesn't have these behaviors at home, which tells you something. And in my opinion, his behaviors that what he was exhibiting were exactly what Nancy just said. They were communicating that he 
did not have control, that he didn't want to be there, that, you know, he was fighting, he was rejecting. I mean, there's, there's a quote in the book um, from Murray, Sid, Murray Sidman about, you know, how often people with disabilities run away, right? What are they running away from? They're running away from what, well, you know, again, that structure, control, lack of agency. Um, so, you know, I think it, 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 it was a time. Um, I hope today it's better, and I think it is better, but we certainly don't have the kind of inclusive placements in education, you know, uh, afforded, you know, opportunities for as many students, you know, as there should be. It should be universal, and it certainly isn't yet. Thank you for that. I, I, I think that, as you mentioned also, thanks to self-advocacy, right, from, from folks uh, with autism and other disabilities, I'm, that that's changing. But I want to sort of start to wind us down with the thing for me is like the professional community's gridlock on this issue is really um it's really hard for me to wrap my head around as like a junior member of the profession. Um, so I want to sort of start to talk a little bit now about the the, the staff and the professionals um, surrounding uh, these issues and this and the Judge Rotenberg um, Center in particular. You know, Nancy, you mentioned early on that uh, in this interview, and it shows up in the book um, in a couple places that you undertook interviews with former staff at um, BRI, JRC. Um, you have this compelling sort of, uh, these compelling stories from a former staff member named Greg Miller, who um, spoke about how his own health deteriorated from what we, we might arguably call vicarious trauma. Um, also, thanks to the New England Center for Investigative Reporting and the Massachusetts Department of Early Education and Care, aka the Free Press in the State, we know that JRC has been frequently cited for neglect and abuse over the last several years, so recently. Um, and in my opinion, these instances sort of exemplify the old union phrase from that student learning conditions are educators' working conditions. So I just want to briefly, you know, also quote from the book, two sets of charges that were brought against staff members in 2016 in a horrific incident. Um, but something I want to sort of highlight, this is on page 284 of the book. At the trial related to this incident, prosecutors said that the staff member used the buckle end of his belt to whip the resident. The accused staff member testified, that client is very aggressive. You have to match aggression with aggression. I'm not going to get broken bones for minimum wage. And then Jan writes in the epilogue, and I'm quoting here again from page 321, the argument that nothing else works is unlikely if people are highly skilled in behavior analysis or functional behavior analysis and positive behavior supports. Interviews conducted with four mothers with children who were placed at JRC and later left that setting revealed that none of the mothers had heard of the terms behavioral analysis or functional behavioral assessment prior to their children being placed at JRC, and they were not involved in planning interventions for their children, which is a violation of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. 
So all this points to the critical importance of a highly skilled workforce in education from the staff level all the way through the institutions that are preparing teachers all the way up to the licensing bodies, right? And yet here we are in the midst of a really acute teacher shortage that has been a long time coming, um, but made incredibly urgent in the wake of COVID-19. In California, which is where I'm speaking to you from, at least one in three teachers is working on emergency credentials without adequate preparation. When I ask my overworked teachers that I'm currently working with, you know, in they're in training, I ask, you know, what are their classroom culture and behavior management strategies? The number one response I get is token economy. And I love that you mentioned, Jan, at the beginning of the interview that uh, BRI was at this conference handing out gold tokens. So under these conditions, can human-centered values, right, the reason TASH was formed, can human-centered values win out over the relative ease of objective measurement, which is what has, I think, held up a lot of the arguments for um, applied behavior analysis and these draconian methods. Can professional preparation efforts to develop the kind of expertise we need, you know, to learn from the historical lens that the book provides happen in these in the contexts that we're in? You know, just because something's not an aversive approach doesn't mean it's a positive approach. And there's we fall back so much, as you allude to, on these kind of coercive strategies. You know, you do this, you get this. You don't do this, you don't get that. And you can't provide positive behavior supports in an aversive environment. So, you know, they, they you cannot provide positive behavior supports at the Judge Rotenberg Center because, as you say, once you give staff you know, I mean, we all, um, I think, are aware of the the numbers of women and men who are sexually abused in institutional settings. Once you give staff the power and the right to treat people badly, there's not a, a there's a lot of gray area. There's not a clear line to staff about what they're allowed to do. I just interviewed a woman who worked there and it was her first job out of college. She knew nothing. She had a couple of days training and she was a direct support staff at the Judge Rotenberg Center just a few years ago. Uh, So this is not ancient history. She worked for six months as a direct support staff person. And then she, they made her a crisis intervention specialist also with no additional training now. Now she was the person who gets called when there's a a critical crisis incident, when somebody needs to be shocked. And we haven't talked a lot about the shock devices, but eventually uh, JRC uh, had electrical engineers design and now they, the facility manufactures portable electric shock devices that people carry in backpacks and the staff can um, use a remote control device to deliver an electric shock to somebody's arm, leg, stomach, sole of their feet, hand, uh, chest, whatever. Um, And these are not small tingling reminder shocks like, hey, you're about to put your hand through the plate glass window. Pay attention here. No, these are extremely painful, fall on the floor, screaming and agony level shocks that go on for two seconds. So now this young woman who had no training is now the the, um, crisis intervention specialist. She talks about how she went to a 
JRC run group home and the staff had somebody tied four point uh, restrained to a board on the floor. And not only are they shocking him, but they're pinching and twisting his flesh under his arm. And she says, wait, that's not part of his program. And they were like, yeah, we always do this. You know, you're some highfalutin, you know, expert, but you know, we this is how we do it in this house. So there's a lot of abuse that goes on there, state sanctioned and ad hoc, because it's hard for staff to draw the line. And staff are equally afraid. They have very punitive methods for staff. I mean, culture is culture. If there's an organizational culture of abuse, it permeates how people are treated and how staff are treated. And, you know, I, I just want to remind uh, the listeners that, you know, Steve Taylor, who was at Syracuse University and directed the Center on Human Policy for many years, his dissertation was he became a worker at an institution. And it was a qualitative observational study. And over time, he watched well-meaning individuals who wanted to work with people with disabilities in an institution, gradually adopt the culture and and begin to become physically more aggressive and use more aggressive and abusive techniques. And so, as Nancy said, you know, the environment, the culture, uh, there's a attorney in the state of New Hampshire who's arguing a case to try to keep a young man out of JRC. And the individual is actually not being placed there for electric shock, but for behavior management. Um, and the argument is that they don't want that man, young man in that environment because he will witness and be part, he will bear witness to people being shocked and also the whole culture of physical abuse you know, will have a negative impact on him. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, there are still people trying to place individuals in this center, you know, and because it exists, uh, there are many parents who fear that if anything happens to them, that they, they could, their child could end up there if their child is, you know, someone who has behavioral issues um, that may be deemed problematic by some people. I mean, for a place that is, you know, <laughs> that was founded by a psychologist that supposedly employs a lot of psychologists, although as we know, and you point out in the book, there's real questions about that. They've been cited for listing folks who are uh, employed there as psychologists when they're not in fact licensed. The psychology of yeah, like the workers at this place, I mean, the footnotes in this book are incredible. Like there's an instance that's footnoted that I almost missed that about a, a brawl, like a half hour brawl between numerous residents and staff who even donned helmets for this. I mean, I just, I, I kind of want to highlight that as as both of you have said, I mean, the, the clustering, clustering people with I think both intensive needs and also people who don't have training, who are looking for a job, hopefully with good intentions in this kind of a shadowy complex, I think, and you're right, Nancy, we haven't had time to talk about really in particular the GED device, which is the electroshock device, which is at the heart of this FDA ban. But that's, I think, because it's really important to lift up 
as Shane Newmeyer, attorney and author of the uh, one of the co-authors of the Forward, says it's about a culture of abuse. And I think it's really important for us to sort of lift up culture as this like prevailing force, you know, that um, affects it affects places, affects the placement, the fact that people continue to use money to lobby for placement here. I mean, Rudy Giuliani's firm in New York is involved in this story. There's just like so much to cover, but culture, I think, is a prevailing force that needs to be raised up as something that also happens. I mean, it, it's also what connects schools to this place, right? And the facility, they used to say that the electric shock felt like a hard pinch or a bee sting. And then in 2002, there was an incident uh, and there's video of this incident available on YouTube. So if you look up the name of the um, young man who was victim to this incident, his name is Andre McCollins. And if you look that up, you can find YouTube video of somebody being shocked, uh, warning you that it's it's horrible to watch. So the story here is that this young man, uh, he was 17 or 18 years old, gets into the classroom off the van and the staff person says to him, take off your jacket. And he doesn't give the finger. He doesn't resist. He just doesn't take off his jacket. He gets his first shock for failing to follow instructions. He screams, falls on the floor, writhing. They manhandle him over to a board. They strap him face down, four-point restraints, and over the next seven hours, he is strapped to that board face down. He is shocked 30 more times. These 30 shocks, either for screaming while being shocked or for tensing his muscles in anticipation of the next shock. After seven hours, they let him up. His mother came to visit him a couple of days later, found him completely unresponsive. She took him to a community hospital where he is, was diagnosed as being catatonic. And his mother says he's never recovered. So he's never been the same person again. So it's just cruel and unusual. The United Nations said that what goes on there is torture, said it that it wouldn't be legal if done against convicted terrorists. So it's not legal internationally if used against convicted terrorists. Certainly don't use it in prisoner of war camps, but we use it against some of the most vulnerable people our society has. And then people like, um, you know, Amnesty International says, oh yeah, well, we don't know what people like that need. So it's it's a problem with society across the board. And it, I, you know, it's this phenomenon of othering, yeah. you know, which is, you know, somehow, and I don't think it's an active mental process. I think it's a, you know, a learned cultural, you know, we, we hear all these things about disability, the images that people see from the time, you know, they're young in movies and books, you know, and, and somehow people with disabilities have been put into this other category, you know, because this would not be taught, you know, if this was, you know, runaway white girls, right, who end up in a residential facility and they were shocked, this would not be allowed. It's only because disability has been attached to them. And it's a them, right? It's not a we. 
And I think that the emergence of self-advocacy, the presence of people with disabilities in our lives, in school and in work, is gradually helping us de-other as a society. And hopefully this practice could, could eventually go away. Unfortunately, I think it's going to have to be through litigation and, and law, but I could be wrong. Nancy? In 2013, a young woman wrote to me. Her name is Jennifer Masumba, M-S-U-M-B-A. She was there. She experienced the shock, and she wrote me a letter that she originally asked to be anonymous, but now I share her name with you because she has decided she doesn't need to be anonymous. Um, She, with incredible Recall and Insight talks about her life there. She's just published a book called Shouting at Leaves, available everywhere, uh, telling about her history. And, you know, her history gives a good example of how people end up at a place like this, how the facility then took guardianship away from her parents. So when her parents then said, oh, no, we didn't give permission for her to be shocked, the facility says, yeah, well, you have no legal relationship with her. You're not her guardian. So, and this is true whether the person is a child or an adult, the family is removed. Um, it, it was her writings that really got the Food and Drug Administration to pay attention. When I sent her letter to the Department of Justice and the Food and Drug Administration, they wanted, both uh, federal agencies wanted to interview her. She asked if I would be on the phone with her. They wanted to know, uh, you know, it became clear that they were trying to figure out, is this person who wrote this, is this a real person? She clearly is a real person. Uh, And it was, I mean, advocates had been advocating against this place for 40 years. But when Jennifer spoke in her own voice about her own experience, it moved people in a way that others never could. And so when Disabled advocates have gotten together. Uh, Disabled advocates have had protests and sit-ins. And um, when this happens, this is really what changes the scope of the advocacy movement in ways that others never could. So this voice, the voice of people who themselves have disabilities or have been there, is really very critical in in this fight. Definitely. Um, <clears throat> we're going to have to edit this part. I just had something go down the wrong pipe. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Um, yes. And thank you so much, Nancy, for uh, centering Jennifer's letter. Um, you know, the, the contributions from self-advocates, from the autistic community bookmark the beginning and the end of this book. Um, and uh, as you say, are, are, have been in, in the book and in this interview have been critical to advance this issue to just to, to wrap up. Cause we are at time and there's so much to cover that we haven't covered, but I also, both of you do a, a, an amazing job of, of folding everything in. So thank you so much for carrying that. Um, I want to just wrap up with, what's what's next um, for each of you as much as you want to share and for this uh, issue? So we're waiting, you know, to hear about whether or not the, you know, U.S. Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit will do what's called an unbank 
review, which bring, essentially is all the circuit judges. I believe there's 12 uh, will r- review the case uh, because the recent decision overturned the FDA ban. Um, so, so FDA, U.S. Department of Justice and the FDA appealed to the court for an en banc review, which is the really the only thing um, that they can do, or they can change the scope of the ban, um, which would be rather difficult uh, because the ban was very specific and the testimony was very specific to people with disabilities and electric shock devices. So those really are the two options. So, you know, we're waiting, I'm waiting. Nancy and I are working on uh, an op-ed that we're going to try to get out there that will revise as things change over time. Um, And we're getting um, the book on a Facebook page, and we're going to try to really leverage social media uh, to hopefully get more people who are interested in social justice issues outside of the disability rights uh, community to understand what's going on, because I think the more the public knows this, uh, the less toleration there will be for these kinds of practices. Um, Jan and I really wish that there was an end to the book before we ended the book. We kept <laughs> saying, like, well, let's just wait. And then we it would be all ready for publication. Can we add just one paragraph because something important happened? And we just eventually had to cut our losses and publish the book. But uh, as a result of the book coming out, uh, I have always, you know, for 30 years, I have headed up this uh, advocacy movement and kept a list of everybody who's ever expressed interest. I communicate with this list all the time about what's happening and try to garner support, letter writing and whatever I can think of that would be helpful. Uh, As a result of the book coming out, though, I've heard a lot from past residents and the calm survivors and from past staff people and from some family members. And it's always, I've always thought, why isn't there a lawsuit on behalf of these people who were hurt, mistreated? People have ongoing post-traumatic stress from having been there. I just spoke to a woman who's 31 years old. She's married now, has two kids, but she says she was there for her almost into her entire childhood. She never got any education. She doesn't know how to read. And so, you know, and then, and she was, I mean, she was abused in all kinds of ways. So I've always wondered why there wasn't a lawsuit. I've really been working lately on trying to find lawyers who would take this on, who would represent people who were hurt there. And I have just in the last week found a group of amazing lawyers who are 100% committed to taking this issue on. And now I'm helping them to find people who would be a member of the plaintiff class and who would be represented in this lawsuit. So that's what I'm working on. Amazing. I hope that uh, you can use the legal system to your advantage. That's one of the one of the things in the book that's so wild is just the way that the legal system has actually permitted, you know, the the ongoing uh, operation of the center. And just lastly, there's a bill uh, making its way through Congress, right, um, that would prohibit Department of Education funding 
to institutions, I don't know why it's a plural, <laughs> since it's really just one that use electric shock. What do you have any, pro- do you have, do either of you have any prognosis or expectations for the likelihood of, of that bill succeeding? I am always hopeful. There have been a lot of state uh, bills, legislation in Massachusetts trying to outlaw this. Those have never been successful. Uh, It's been approached through regulation and legislation. I really, after 30 years, don't get too excited about anything because every time we think, ah, so, hey, so the FDA banned the electric shock device. Yes, finally, after years and years and years of consideration, they did it, but that it's not really done. It's been challenged. So I am hopeful about this bill, but uh, I, all of my hope is always tempered by, by the experience, the reality of the experience I've had in advocating for this all along. But, you know, but the, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services did stop funding Medicaid, stop funding any placements associated with the Judge Rottenberg Center and Electric Shock. So it is certainly possible that it could happen and there's precedent. But, you know, I think Nancy and I, have, you know, you keep thinking like, why didn't they win this lawsuit? Yeah. Uh, we remain cautious, maybe. Sometimes I just feel like I've fallen down the rabbit hole. You know, <laughs> that when you tell somebody about this, like I said at the beginning, they say, how could this be legal? It is legal, unfortunately. Well, thanks to both of you for uh, maintaining your optimism and hopefulness and persisting in this work. It's definitely, you know, your experience and everything that's packed into this book is like is uh, really necessary for folks like me who don't have oftentimes access to a lot of the professional history that uh, undergirds this particular place, but also the field of special education to this day. So thank you both so much for your time today. And uh, I look forward to hearing updates on this issue.